This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Nigel Walsh, partner at Deloitte, and I'm hosting alone today. Like Sarah, who said to me last week I was sunning myself in Dubai, I'm sure she's having so much more fun at Money Live in Amsterdam. Be back soon, Sarah. But a very special guest is making a hopefully more regular appearance back with us welcome david to the show it's uh, super to be back yeah a, a course of uh, holiday and then sickness meant i was away a little bit longer but uh, it's really really cool to be back in uh, back in the office and back in uh, in gear so um this week's show will focus on cyber insurance which is a really hot topic right now in terms of what we're doing um we're going to look at what it is why it matters and why companies need it the social impact behind cyber hacks and how it's part of the industry that although it's quite young is continually evolving in terms of where we're going so it's going to be a big one i think couldn't agree more cyber is hot 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 before we get into that we're joined by some fantastic guests in the room today we have uh, gareth wharton cyber ceo at hiscox and thomas clayton cyber underwriter at zurich thanks for joining us guys before we uh jump into our round table could you for our listeners give us a quick summary about uh, what each of you do Thomas? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so I've got sort of two roles, really. Uh, so on the one hand, I lead uh, our uh, wholesale underwriting process uh, in the London market, so writing big, large companies from all across the world. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm also uh, developing more developing markets. Uh, so that's the UK domestic market, uh, Dubai and Ireland as well. Fantastic. Gareth. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Gareth Wharton. I'm cyber CEO at Hiscox. Uh, I've been at Hiscox about 12 years. 11 of those I've been in the IT function, most recently as CTO and CIO. Uh, and then last year I saw the light and are now joined our cyber underwriting team. So I look after a team that helps provide services out to our cyber underwriters across the Hiscox group. Fantastic. So as always on these shows, and I think useful for us all, uh, Thomas, you mentioned wholesale market as well. So we start off with definitions and helping our listeners far and wide understand what it is. So would you mind sharing what is cyber insurance? Sure thing. Uh, so um, that's actually probably quite a more difficult uh, question than it perhaps should be. Um, so we're all used to hearing sort of the words of cyber being banded about, so you know, cyber attacks, cyberspace, cyber terrorism, uh, even cyber bullying. Um, but actually, probably quite a few of us know exactly what it means. And quite simply, cyber just means relating to IT and computer systems. So when we talk about cyber insurance, what we're insuring against is those external threats and those internal mistakes that lead to the failure of those systems or a breach of the information contained on them. That was quite nice and succinct, actually. I, I, I quite like that. Gareth, anything to add? No, I think it's a, it's a really good point. I think when we as underwriters talk about cyber, if I talk to another cyber underwriter, we have a good understanding of what cyber means and where the breadth of the cover is. But talking to customers, customers don't understand where cyber stops and starts. So I think we do have a uh, an opportunity to be clearer with our customers about what we are covering and what we aren't covering. And as Thomas said, the difference between uh, different insurers offer different cover. So it's difficult. I think we don't make it easy for buyers to buy the policies because we often talk across purposes. So, so who's the buyer of this then what, what are they what are they insuring against here because yeah, i guess you talked about a few different things in that 
I guess that definition, but like, what's the typical risk that somebody's coming to you guys to mitigate with this insurance? So I think there's two questions there. Who's buying? It tends to be the risk manager. So it's interesting that, it, or the general counsel, it's interesting that we're not generally the first conversation is not with an IT person, it's someone who buys the insurances for that company. As to what the covers are, normally it's a third party cover, so uh, you're using material on your website that you're not allowed to use, or first party where it's an event that's happened to you. So as Thomas was saying, a ransomware attack is very typical, uh, a hacking event where someone's broken into one of your services, uh, we're seeing some more of that with crypto jacking and that sort of thing. So uh, normally any attack that's been on you as, as you, you as the first party, your company have been attacked from a cyber incident. I'm going to add to that if I can, or, or We'll come back to the not many people know what they're buying. And I hear this all the time in the market, not just about cyber, but about insurance in general. Do we have an education issue still, specifically with this this line of cover, to say, actually, do you know what you need and what you're buying then to cover it accordingly? Uh, absolutely. I, th- I think there's, there's one, a lack of knowledge about that there is such a thing as cyber insurance. Uh, and then I think there's a gap around uh, what, what that insurance covers. And then there's a bigger gap as to what that claims experience looks like. If you do have an event, what claim, you know, what's covered under a claim? But, but then conversely, it's beholden on insurers to design products that actually meet the needs of our customers. So if our customers have a really clear idea as to what sort of computer risk they want to cover, to some extent, who are we to go and say, well, no, you can't have that because uh, we've got a, a London cyber market and these are the five points of cover that we want to give you. It's really interesting because exactly what you guys are saying, like cyber is such a broad capability you know a broad thing like are we talking about uh insuring somebody against a, a ddos attack on on their their website or like you say a, a you know theft of data in a data center it's it's such a broad thing here the risk profiling on this must be huge and and like how do you assess a company's relative risk you know that modeling is is really interesting arguably a you know one insurance company to another or you know the the one company to another assessing their systems in this instance like this isn't a 20 questions and we can give you a profiling this is much more rigorous than that isn't it you're absolutely right and the real uh, difficulty here is that we just don't have the you know, centuries of data that other lines of business do so we're not we're not the property market we can't just you know look up every single storm and hurricane over the last 150 years um we've got 10 years of data and actually the you know the spectrum has moved so quickly in that time that actually nine of those 10 years are pretty useless. Um, so as a result, we've got to be firstly thinking about you know, absolutely the latest trends, but also thinking a little bit more outside of the box. So for example, you know, when we approach our underwriting, we look at the, how much of targets are these guys? Um, because let's not think, you know, before we even start thinking about, well, if they're attacked, um, you know, how, how successful is that attack going to be? Because quite frankly, if the People's Army or the Republic of China want to get into your computer system, they're going to be able to do it. Uh, so let's start thinking about, well, you know, how likely are those people going to want to get in there? But, but you, you talked about wholesale in your, in your introduction, and I often break, this, break the industry down, and probably wrongly so, but I break it down to different segments of the market. And if I go from commercial insurance all the way through to personal insurance and all the facets in between along the way, if I was to take, and again, I've looked at things like the cyber essential scheme from the government, which I think is a essential mandatory start that gets you a certificate for every single organisation out there that should have or should be considering this being going forward, especially small businesses. How do you see this differing from, you know, your white van man or your small florist all the way through to organisations like ourselves or David's organisation that require different levels of cover when we're dealing with clients' data? 
Yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily draw a distinction just between how large these companies are. It's also about the sort of exposure that they have. So we look at, well, look, their reliance uh, on access to the computer systems, uh, how that affects their ability to run their business, um, and also um, you know, how much and how sensitive the data that they hold is. And to some extent, that's the barometer by which we expect them to have different levels of protection, not necessarily just how large is the company. And I think as a, as a net result of that, there's not a day that goes by that we don't see an organisation hacked or compromising data of some sort. Um, there's an old FBI quote out there, whether it's true or not, but everyone will have seen on LinkedIn or uh, something at some point that says it's not a case of um, if, it's a case of when um, you're going to be hacked. It generally feels like that. I mean, Deloitte, is, as everyone will know, has also been uh, a victim of this in, in time. We've also got one of the biggest practices out there. Um, that, for me, means it's quite exciting. But I guess that to that point, though, it means the necessity of this type of thing is there, isn't it? It's, uh, if it's, uh, it's par for the course of, of being, you know, actively doing things in a, in a digital world, that at some point this is going to happen. You know, to your point, when you're a, a kind of a, a small organisation, you're going to be less of a target because there's less of a benefit. Uh, you know, it's, um, I think there's a statistic, uh, I remember, you know, HSBC, uh, because they're so huge, have a ridiculous amount of daily attacks on, on their systems because the benefit to somebody breaking down those systems and being able to access the either the information at the scale that they're doing or the uh, you know the customer data or whatever it is 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 so much more beneficial. So you know it, it's a weird thing to say success breeds this type of att- attraction, doesn't it? But uh, and I guess the the difficulty is in this environment where you just don't know if you have been. You know, there's been like you say Tesco Bank and you know various different organisations over the last sort of year or so and I think Laura's put into the, the show notes here that 375 billion to 575 billion dollars of estimated annual cost to the global economy from cybercrime like that is insane like so so I guess you you guys seeing you know from a client perspective this must be in a situation where people are just trying to figure out what they do in this sense you know like statistics like that make me think that you know everybody should be doing something well Nigel talked about education and the cyber readiness report that we've just done with with Forrester has got 4,000 companies surveyed and 45% had an attack in 2017 so it is very much your odds on going to be attacked and it is a when not if and I, and I think part of the education bit is this this myth that I'm only a small business so I'm not going to be targeted it's not about targeting with sort of ransomware as a service you can buy that rootkit without needing to know anything about it it's utterly indiscriminate ransomware of as a service yeah so the idea is now you don't even need to pay for the ransomware you get it for free and a percentage of the cut you take the rest of it goes to the criminal so you need no hacking experience you need no upfront cost you can just if you're so inclined you just get it's, on it's, and it's do an it. extension to the sort of script kiddies phenomenon that we saw in the early 2000s yeah you, you just go onto the dark web you hire somebody to do this uh, it's outsourcing global outsourcing it uh, it has its benefits and its its uh, negatives doesn't it let's assume an event's taken place help us with our listeners here what then happens so i have a breach what then happens with you guys? What kicks in? And I'm sure there's pre-event issues and there's post-event issues. Pre-event we've talked about a little bit. Post-event, what goes on? So um, that's really the key thing about cyber insurance is that you're not just buying the policy of indemnity, so to cover the costs associated with handling that breach. What you're really buying is the instant response solution that comes uh, alongside that policy. Uh, So uh, the best ones out there provide you with an instant manager. Uh, They'll coordinate between the insured and the vendors uh, that are required to handle uh, the breach. Uh, So there'll be legal expertise, IT forensics, PR, 
notification companies, uh, forensic accountancies. These people all all designed to uh, deal with each and every aspect of a breach. And the idea is that you're not just handling this alone. The insurer is there to make sure that you're put in touch with the best people uh, at the right time. That's really interesting, PR in that. Because actually a big part of this is, you know, particularly when we've, we've seen things like the Equifax stuff coming through, it's how you handle this and communicate it to customers is kind of almost as critical as what you're doing to fix the problem. You're absolutely right. And it's a really short time period that we're talking about. It's that first of 12 hours. You've got to get right in front of that news cycle, get your version of the story out there, really reassure your customers that you're doing everything that you can to mitigate uh, the risks against it. And fundamentally, as insurers, that's entirely to our benefit because we're going to be ultimately paying out on, on the business impact that that customers face and if we can mitigate that business impact through any means including pr then that's absolutely to our benefit it's really interesting actually and it goes to a conversation i had just before this podcast around insurance is no longer just insurance there's a whole load of value-added services that go around it yeah and i think that's probably the most important thing about the cyber insurance it's not like a home insurance policy where if someone steals your television we'll send you a new television this is about getting your business back up and running so exactly as thomas says it's that whole raft of services that probably if you're a small business you don't have a legal firm or a pr firm on retainer it's ability to call on this phalanx of services to get your business up and running and make you look like you've got this under control and you know we've paid claims where we've extended if it's credit cards that are stolen We'll set up a call centre, we'll call everybody that's had their credit card beach, we'll offer them credit monitoring for a year. So you can reassure your customers. And when you think about those sort of costs, taking that on yourself is just not possible. So insurance can provide a useful backstop in these situations. It's, it's fascinating because it's arguably the type of thing that should be being offered in all types of insurance, really. You know, this is the, the service around the product that they actually you know they they buy um, because it's it's that reassurance of all of the things that they don't know about in detail. It's just it's taken something like cybersecurity where people are just not hundred percent clear about what they need to do, what they what others need to be doing for them to to kind of spur you into doing it. So like I, I'd like to see this around every type of insurance really. That it's that additional benefits that you kind of see around everything. So how, like it yeah it it seems like a I guess it must be such an evolving topic though because like how much we see insurance kind of moving much more to sort of preventative measures rather than uh, you know just the you know the SWAT team who kicks the door in when things have gone wrong and fixes everything like how much are you guys looking at I guess insuring working with your clients to you know shore up their defenses to, to ensure that they don't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's quite it's, it's a big deal. As Thomas said, you know, if we can make an event less bad, that's good for everybody because we're paying a smaller claim. The customer's back on his feet more more quickly. But the same happens uh, pre-breach. So uh, I think if you look at most insurers, that post-breach services look broadly similar. You know, there's different panels. People use different things. The pre-breach service is where the product is evolving. So um, if we can make you a better risk so we can reduce your risk, then you're less likely to have a claim, which makes you more attractive to us. So, for example, at Hiscox, we've just set up a cyber academy, so we'll offer cyber customers free cyber training, so phishing, malicious emails, uh, spotting dodgy websites. Back to the education that, piece, right? Absolutely. So we're trying to tackle not only the technology, but the people and process bit, because we've looked at it in 2017, 40% of our claims were ransomware. So if we can stop people clicking that link, that's yeah. good for us and that's good for the customer. We didn't get this with home insurance, though, or motor insurance, or... I think things are shifting. If you think about car 
insurance, you know, the, the Thatcham car alarm sort of led to changes in behaviour. And with home insurance, you know, the Hiscox partnership with Neos that we're providing more of a protection service. Here's some pre-event services like stopping at flood sensors and those sort of things. So I think cyber's moving in that. If we can protect you as well as provide the backstop. We're also quite lucky in that because we're such a young industry, the people who are buying right now are the people who are really, really on top of this and really recognise uh, you know, the issues that, and the exposures that they have. And so they're actually quite willing to go along this journey with us. Um, I think it'd be interesting as this market develops over the next 10 years as to whether we see that being kept up. Arguably that, that though is interesting from a risk profiling perspective, isn't it? Because I guess uh, an omission of, uh, you know, you need this at this stage means you're probably much more of a target for, for threats, which must be actually quite interesting from a risk profile. Because you're essentially, if people are self-selecting in ter- terms of it, you, like they're all on that end of the spectrum, aren't they? Yeah, and we definitely saw that in the early days of our book where we just had a whole load of financial institutions and retailers coming uh, to <laughs> us. And, and, and that's great. Um, yeah, we, we, we think they're good risk, but we can't just have that in our book. Exactly. And we need to diversify, and, uh, and, and eventually we did. Um, you're absolutely right, there is some sort of self-selection, but I think actually at the moment the self-selection is around about those who understand the exposure that they face rather than just those who have a large exposure. And I'd much rather ensure those people end the other way. Yeah, self-awareness is the thing, right? Do you see a bunch of organisations getting it because they need to tick the box for their executive board because someone needs to say, we've got cyber cover in the event that something happens and they don't really know what they're buying or they have it just to tick a box? Or have you moved on from that now? I don't think I really sort of saw that. I, I, I think that um, we are seeing some tick boxing when it comes to contractual obligations. So where people have to have cyber insurance in order to satisfy the contracts with their, uh, well, either suppliers or more likely customers. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we've ever seen this as, uh, well, you know, I just need some cyber insurance, um, therefore just go and buy anything. It's just not quite that transactional yet. Um, I, you know, frankly, the process doesn't lend itself to those sorts of companies. And do you think it will get and where I was going was go back many years ago we used to have things like identity theft protection do you think I mean I've mentioned it a few times I I strongly believe my kids the next generation down will probably have individual personal cyber protection and I suspect if it's not out there today we'll see it this year an individual cyber policy that protects me and my assets that I've got i.e. my data rather than anything else yeah is that a market you think we're going to go into or? yeah or your kids will say well privacy is dead uh, all of my information is out there on the dark net and in fact internet um, anyway and so what do I care if I get another data breach um, I think we're likely to see some more sort of breach fatigue where people say well oh another notification through the post somebody else yeah. has got rid of my data but it's already out there anyway so what's the issue Gareth mentioned 40 of companies right so that's that's a big number are we now numb to it to your point so are we now numb to the fact that i get a letter from my mortgage provider saying we've had a breach here's your credit monitoring for the next year free of charge on us is it an everyday expectation now i couldn't agree more there's a certain numbness there it's it's almost expected you know when it was a billion yahoo records everyone was like yep better change that password right let's move on so and if you look at the share price of most of the big breaches most share prices have recovered so it, it hasn't had a long-term impact for most companies you look at equifax you look at talk talk um you know all the big companies that have yeah. had a big breach they're not really suffering long-term damage well, but but the, some of these guys, though, so like the Yahoo one, I was just surprised people were still using Yahoo, quite frankly. Like it, was a, it was like a weird, a weird sense. Yeah, I was like, who were those people and defend them instantly? But the Equifax one, I think it has had, it might not have had an immediate share price impact in terms of, uh, you know, I think they did dip, didn't they? It definitely they hasn't a little but, bit. But sort of long term. I think the, yeah, the trust in the, what, what they're there for. Because bizarrely, to the PR sense, it like did, out of, out of the four of us here, who got the, 
letter from Equifax. Did you guys get one? So, um, did you get one? No. So, me and Jason, uh, Jason Bates, um, got one as. Uh, and it was kind of like uh, I don't know. I couldn't tell whether it was just because we we're in their industry, and I, and I was like, yeah, I guess. But they tried to turn it into a sales opportunity to basically give you the pro- a few products, and you know, this is what we're doing. And they were trying to your PR point a second ago. They were really trying to spin it into a this is how we're going to help you out of this situation type thing. But um, you know, f- I think they've really become a bit of a you know a a butt of a joke over the you know this generation of problems really yeah you mean actually i mean to, to your point you know if you look at sort of the big data breaches so you know anthem targets even talk talk in the uk these guys are still in business i mean you know a year or two down the line and nobody really cares Equifax feels different i think it feels different for a couple of reasons firstly i think they dealt with it absolutely appallingly uh, so it was very slow news to come out it came, it, it eked out over the course of the week um, there was some suspicion of impropriety on behalf of the directors um, they didn't have their sort of pr in order but i think you really hit the nail on the head when you sort of think well that is their entire business yeah. that they, they're a data aggregator that you know that they collect data of everybody on the planet it should be in their DNA, um, and it wasn't. I think that's why it feels different. That's why they got hit harder from a reputational perspective than perhaps other people have. And I think it wasn't just name, address. You know, it, it is much more personally sensitive data. And I think you're right. They don't do anything else, so that you sort of expect them to be good at this sort of stuff. Maybe in years to come, we talk about identity on the blockchain. This is one for Simon's show, not this show potentially. But um, Simon talks about this a lot in the office. Essentially, you know, distributed ledger technology could be a good solution to that but at the point where actually everything's out there already it's almost at what point do you you know you try and put the the genie back in the bottle to a certain degree because to your point actually most information people are giving up willingly at the moment you know the 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 elements of social media where you know you're you can social engine and this is the thing it's like the the lowest common denominator of any system is usually a human being it's not the the technology that's around it so all of the information that's actually out there through facebook and twitter and instagram and all these things means actually you can build up a profile on people so easily so i think it's going to take a real uh for, from an individual perspective it's going to take such a a real uh reassessment of what the internet's there for from a business perspective i guess the even still like the and i've i've got them you know in the last six months or so i've, I've got you know six or seven of the emails that look like it's from an internal person going hey if you can just transfer me four hundred thousand pounds please that was Jason. It, urgently yeah he does that every week just to test me but um but no it's um so i, I think the the bizarrely the sophistication of some of these attacks is not significant but you know you, you've reiterated the point a few times it's about education isn't it you know it's easy to spot these things when it's some nigerian prince who's trying to get you to transfer a million pounds or whatever type thing but when it's um, when it looks like it's your uh, FD or whatever, then the you can quickly go into be conned. Right? Yeah, it's a simple email masking. Then the sort of context of this changes, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think we'll all get a lot better at spotting that and so, you know, picking up on some of those telltale signs. I mean, you're right; nobody falls. Well, hopefully, nobody falls for those African prince ones anymore. Um, and equally, it's a great story on time. Facebook at the moment, but that's a different conversation for a different day. They never replied to my emails. You know? <laughs> still waiting for your fortune. <laughs> but going back to the um, your emails you get on a regular basis, I mean, we still have things like GDPR obviously kicking in, not from a cyber perspective but you talked david about giving access to our data how many people have received an email over the last three months going with these new data protection laws and just click yes without even thinking twice i know i've done it numerous times because i recognize a brand that i've gone okay i recognize there's a, a new legislation coming out okay it's okay to share my data so do we really care about it or not um 
the bo- both the organizations you guys mentioned were large organizations and I, and I recall from some recent work I was doing with the clients um, that the SME sector is really at risk here so there was a study done in the states I think where something like 60 percent of small businesses that suffer a cyber attack are out of business within six months and that's the sector I worry about more if you think about 98 percent of the companies in the UK and you know most of the developed world are small businesses so yes big businesses can, can sustain it how do small businesses get ready and sustain this? You're absolutely right. So, I mean, historically, we've seen sort of cyber insurance as just there for you know, the, the big boys. Um, you know, it's seen as a luxury spend. It's seen that they're the only targets out there. Uh, we're definitely seeing where we're growing is in that sort of mid-market. They're the people who really want to buy at the moment. GDPR is definitely raising the profile there. Um, I think that you know, they, they recognize themselves they're being more of a target. They're an easier target, perhaps. Yeah, ransomware we're seeing um, you know, being sort of really easily, widely distributed uh, piece of software that you, know, you send it out to a thousand people and if it works of five times then, then that's great and to some extent that's actually probably easier than going and sort of hacking into some highly secure uh, financial institution yeah i mean it's an it is a nightmare for small businesses if you think about those businesses you know we paid a claim on, on a small opticians uh, one of the members of staff got an email saying you've been caught speeding click here to see the photos that was a ransomware oh. it's three branches of the opticians they're out of business for about a week you know they couldn't place any orders for glasses they couldn't see any customers and you think okay that's a bricks and mortar company that doing physical trade they're not really an online business but it's the data it's not the online nature of it if you can't you know, place orders, you can't get customers in for eye tests. Take a payment, whatever else. Exactly. So, you know, insurance can provide that backstop. It's difficult if you're a small business. You've got limited t- you're trying to run your business, and then you've got this threat that you don't really understand. People are saying, oh, you need to buy insurance, you need to buy antivirus, you need an inter- IDS or an IPS. And you're like, I don't understand these technologies. Yeah. It is very difficult to be good at this as a small business. Just unpack that, though. So what was it, so for people who don't necessarily have the um, IT background that you do, so what was it that happened to them? internal network that would have caused them to have that problem i said they had a ransomware attack so that encrypted the the machine that that was the initial one that had gone to the various website but then it had laterally moved across their network and infected all the machines in that office jumped onto the one in the other office through the central server and just encrypted all the all the machines on their network so they had effectively no computers and the hard thing about that is that these things can be untraceable right like actually that as an activity if that person hadn't of you know con- been concerned about potentially that uh, that click that they did and highlighted it to somebody essentially that information could just sit you know the the issue could sit there lurking and capturing data capturing information for years really i think it's what we're starting to see now ransomware is very intrusive and it gives you the uh, the chance to to get you know half a bitcoin or whatever it is you know a couple of couple of thousand dollars if you're if you're lucky but there's quite a lot of work for the ransomware person to do that because they've got to speak to you they've got to they've got to show the customer how to get a bitcoin then they've got to transfer it to them there's actually quite a long time between you perpetrating the crime and actually getting your payment so uh, it's not a great customer journey as we'd say in the digital world so what we're seeing is a move to crypto jacking where they break into your network might be the same way but instead of ransomware on the computer they're just using spare computer cycles to mine um, cryptocurrency so it sits in the background you don't know it's there it you don't see that it's happening uh, yet it's using all your computer cycles and bandwidth to generate uh, bitcoins for someone else see we, we've talked about this on the podcast before like um i was like people are happy when it's decrypting dna but they're not happy they're not happy when it's mining cryptocurrency yeah, type yeah. thing you know like yeah. I, I think there's a not not that anybody should be using that obviously you know for 
you know, everybody listening. Not that I'm endorsing breaking into people's computers and mining uh, mining Bitcoin type thing, but like idle idle processing power would be one thing. But I remember um, Simon particularly telling me, I think it was at the point where they're using 95% of your uh, CPU for for doing it and not giving any of it back. You're in a problem. Aren't you? Might slow down email, which is which is a good thing, right? It's going to uh, be yeah, that thing. would be nice. So so how do we raise a profile of cyber insurance in general? We talked about education. Is it an insurance issue? Is it a government issue? We've seen it on the news, whether it's the NHS. I've been made sit through it with Grey's Anatomy. If anyone watched Grey's Anatomy, it was a cyber attack on, on Grey's Anatomy. Who, whose role is it and, and how do we raise a profile? Uh, it's a great question. I think, uh, that, again, there's, there's no silver bullet answer. So I think insurance has a role to play. Government has a role to play to try and raise that standard. I think cyber essentials is a really positive step. Um, you know, just that level of hygiene to say my business meets that standard. Uh, if businesses start to see that's a sort of minimum baseline to do business with other businesses that would be a really good step i think there's a there's a piece on us to make those policies really simple to understand make it nice clear language what is covered what isn't covered and make that cover clear that it's to get your business up and running um but there is an education piece here this i don't have any critical data i don't have any personal data i'm too small a business that's just all gone by the wayside if we looked at the claims we paid last year 70 percent of the companies we paid claims for didn't have critical personal identifiable information if you think about that optician there's not a lot of personal data there but there is a lot of data that stopped that business working. Yeah. I, I think it's an excellent question. It's one that insurers are really grappling with at the moment because you know, we've all heard the stats about how the side market is going to double, triple, quadruple. And it's, it's quite easy to sit back and be complacent and just ride the market up. But I think it's actually inherent in us to go out there and promote some insurance and prove as to why we should see that growth. And I think there are a few things we can do. So firstly, insurers and brokers ourselves uh, need to educate ourselves on the importance of this exposure to our clients and you know, go and learn the basics to go and go and talk, have a decent conversation. I think we need to prove our worth when we have incidents that come in. We need to be there to help our, our insureds and pay those claims on time, keep our promises. Um, and then finally, we just need to create products, and that's not just the wording, um, that customers truly want. Uh, so we need to start thinking about what's important to them. I've heard the Lloyds exec talking uh, for quite a significant amount of time about London being the heart of cyber insurance. Is that true? Will we remain the centre of this if technology is the answer to everything? Will it move elsewhere to Asia or to the USA? Or can we really be at the heart of all this? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what makes the London market special, it's all about the technical expertise and the sheer scale of the market bringing together a lot of capacity uh, under one roof. Um, And I think both of those aspects really lend themselves fantastically well to cyber insurance. So for large companies, you know, in order to cover your cyber uh, exposure, you need to build a very, very large tower, you know, 500 million plus. Where can you do that? Pretty much just London. At the same time, it's a very, very technical line of business. You need underwriters who can understand that. Where are they? London. I mean, wasn't it McGavick that said a while back as well that there's probably not, not enough capacity in the market should a mass event take place? You're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, if I was to do a bit of future gazing, I would perhaps suggest that we might see some sort of insurance pool uh, in the future. In the same way we have for flood re, right? Exactly. So, yeah, if it is too big to insure, um, then there is an argument that the government should step in to take a portion of that if the public protection argument is strong enough. 
Mm, that would be that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? In terms of like that approach, because then it becomes a is it a critical infrastructure element for the the economy, and then actually does the government play a part in ensuring that the it's being properly run from a technology and a cybersecurity perspective in the same way as it would do from a you know a, a financial uh, controls perspective, which is really in, like at the point where the the regulators start to kind of step in on these types of controls. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, so you, you look at the two pools we have in existence at the moment in the UK, so floodry. And that's there because we can't simply um, you know, cover everybody on a floodplain uh, on the commercial insurance I market. Live in, I live um, in Norfolk, and, flat as pancake. And, and we need to cover them because you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a social obligation to do that. Uh, and if you look at Poultry, well, there isn't enough capacity sort of out there in the market. Um, and it's sort of the government's responsibility to protect us mm-hmm. against this stuff. Now, I think both of those arguments are applicable to cyber. I, I could not agree more. I've talked about cyber for quite a while. I genuinely believe people need access to it in the same way that we think broadband is now utility i think this will come through the same sort of way going forward arguably a lot of that comes down to risk profiling though doesn't it like it's um me trying to ensure my uh like renault 5 turbo when i was 16 or whatever it was when i was doing it was proportionate to the policy i was paying and the the risk as an entirety type thing doesn't it i guess back to my earlier point really we're in a scenario now where maybe the ones who really really need it are really really aware of it and the ones are being who are, who are being more proactive there's a almost a um a polar opposite of the proactive nature of people probably are the ones who are maybe more advanced in terms of their architecture and their technology and their awareness of what cybersecurity measures actually need to be and the education of the staff and and but at the same time it's like just because i'm going to the gym doesn't mean i don't need health insurance right you know like there's a there's a real uh, i actually think the the middle pit here is where the and from for your guys perspective moving in from each of those ends of that spectrum is where the the sort of mass market appeal of this types of proposition could really be but if anything all we know is that the risk of this is just going to get bigger and bigger bigger so it's uh, uh it's what's the what's the hook from a uh, an sme or an entrepreneur who's starting up a business from from the beginning and they get to 15 people at what point does this matter to them as much as cash flow because i think you know risk in business is everything isn't it I think that's actually a really interesting point. And I, I think I've heard that argument used as an argument for compulsory purchase of cyber insurance. So similar to uh, employers' liability in the UK, yeah. forcing every single company to buy cyber insurance. Um, and you, know, you can sort of see the argument there. There's the public protection. So you know, if the public need to sue somebody because their data has been lost, then you need to make sure that each company has cyber insurance to go and cover that. Anyone providing services to a larger organisation must buy by default of their procurement and contracting processes have the relevant covers in there for cyber breach for malicious employee or or elsewhere so that's really important as well right so i think we'll get to a stage where it is it's a cost of doing business the question then for me is is it the onus of the individual providing the service or the person buying it Hmm. it it is an interesting one is it i I don't think there's that many if you if you go and talk because that that requires such a a difference of level of knowledge through procurement significant procurement departments type thing so i know through you know msas that we've signed there yes there are policies for professional indemnity insurance and these types of things but there's not a you know a cyber insurance policy requirement in there as a as a mandatory thing yeah we we have lots of small independent contractors and we're starting to see them come to us and go the person i'm contracting to uh, this is a large (coughs) broadcaster is saying you need to have cyber not only do you need to have 
uh, PI, but you need to have cyber cover as well. So that's your point about the the path of least resistance through the through the door might be a small contract that's fixed a really big problem for you, but didn't have the right cyber cover and didn't have systems that were adequately protected. And as a net result, they've opened the back door into something that is a holy grail for for cyber terrorists going forward. Well, we're seeing it lots with supply chain attacks. You know, they're not going to go after you; they're going to go the weakest weakest point in your supply chain, which is probably a small supplier. I, I can't remember whether it was Target or Home Depot in, in the US where they actually uh, targeted the AV supplier uh, to that particular retailer um, who happened to be sort of, you know, on the network and got in very much through the back door that way. It's amazing. It's like, uh, like you say, it's at what point is it just the admission, like as the FBI says? I guess the, from an FBI perspective, actually, I think they do most of the hacking themselves, don't they, in terms of the, that scenario? So I'm not sure if they're pushing that statistic up. So, But you said about some some sort of provocations of the future. Where, where do you guys really see this going? What's the horizon for this? Is it just going to get a hotter and hotter topic, therefore it's going to be completely kind of covered of the market or are we are we going to still see that the people with the biggest risk are going to be the you know the most paranoid about this i think because of the ubiquity of the risk we'll start to see it broaden out that there is no uh business sector that won't get targeted it is so indiscriminate that uh, that i think will become a widely bought policy what i think we might see is it broadening out to cover a wider set of digital risks so not just a cyber event maybe you know we're already talking about system failure or dependent business interruption so if an upstream supplier goes down that we'd cover that and it's that your digital ecosystem as i think as a customer if i was buying if my service is not available for whatever reason i'd want to buy insurance like that rather than just is it a cyber event or is it a you know, has an upgrade gone wrong or, you know, if it's the BA Airlines, did someone turn off the data centre by accident? Whatever reason my service is not available, kind of I cover for that. But back to David's point about the FBI and, and them doing hacking, is it more actually that insurers going forward will provide ethical hacking services to um, organisations to help them understand, you know, we're all used to pen testing and brute force attacks and everything else. Will it now be actually come and buy your ethical hacking service from the insurance company before we give you cover? Well, I think what's, what's interesting is now that that is there's, there's far greater transparency there. So there's a, there's a whole new set of businesses uh, popped up around outside-in risk scanning. So there are companies like Science or BitSight that can look externally and they'll give you a view as to the patching schedule or what your perimeter looks like. They'll look at your Glassdoor score. They'll look at your LinkedIn profile and see how many information security you And they will give an underwriter a feel admittedly only from the outside so you can't hide that data so i i think that world is changing and i, th- I think uh, so when we saw the WannaCry outbreak last year um there was 59 days between microsoft coming out with that patch and WannaCry exploiting that patch or that lack of patch um so i think what we're going to see is you know will patch cadence become a boardroom conversation it th- that's a very boring it thing it's difficult to do well it's not very glamorous it's not going to win you any more customers but actually being able to keep your systems patched and up to date is become, going to become a really important thing. And I wonder if that's become a boardroom conversation. Yeah. And therefore, you know, if that happens automatically in the cloud and it's difficult to do on-prem, is that going to drive different behaviours from you know, customers? I, th- I think that's a really interesting point. And, and you know, there's, there's so much uh, talk about the lack of um, technological expertise in senior levels and really, you know, particularly in large financial services organisations. But, you know, at what point has standardisation of IT infrastructure and capability just made it much, much easier for people to kind of, you know, if something works in uh, in a AWS context, then actually you've got a really large barrel of fish to be going after. Um, the 
but that standardization is is almost making these vulnerabilities over there aren't but i think they? it pushes the world further and further or closer and closer to cloud-based computing i mean why be responsible for all i mean we're moving off, to- off topic here but why be responsible for all those things myself in a known data center in a known environment versus i listened to a um a session with the CTO for Amazon or AWS at one point, and he turned around and said, look, we've got this great big haystack and we've got a tiny little needle. So do you want it in your haystack or in ours? And I promise you, we spend way more money than anyone else on this sort of stuff than, any, than anyone else. And, I, and it's just sat there and hit me, you know, straight between the eyes and went, actually, this is a really valid point for moving to a cloud-based environment where they spend a fortune on um, developing security systems for... Well, and that system out. is completely homogeneous, so they can patch a bazillion machines in an hour, whereas every one of your services is a bit of snowflake they all look slightly different you've got to patch your dev systems and then your production systems and that's just i'm not convinced a bazillion is a number i'm just gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about the snowflake comment are we talking about youngsters here or are we talking about millennials or what? servers they're all built slightly differently so they all look unique i personally think that we should approach this on a, on a, on a case-by-case basis so you know sometimes you know just keeping up to standardization is enough for people you know, if, if you've got a low exposure then you know frankly if they can keep to cyber essentials and these are even iso 27001 then that's that's fantastic. Uh, you know, you go, you go and do that. Uh, if you've got much higher exposure, then you need to get a little bit more creative and perhaps bring in this. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I looked at the cyber essentials and thought, my God, this is naughty, but then realised, actually, it's the essentials. You should be doing this by default. Having the certificate is a is a tick in the box to go, I've read it, I've understood it, I've acknowledged it, and I'm thinking about my cybersecurity or my situation going forward. So it's really important people go do it. And I think it's an interesting underwriting question. Have you got cyber essentials? And if, if the uh, customer looks at you blankly, that's not really a good sign. At least if you can say, I'm on the journey, or we couldn't do this. Here's or my we... certificate number. Yeah, it should be exactly. a default entry yeah, point yeah. to the SME piece that says, here's my number, and it gives you an instant um, either permission to proceed or discount on the premium. Yeah. How, um, just, uh, and I guess we're, we're running pretty long this, so, but the, my last point is where does liability really sit in this sense? So from a company perspective, obviously to customers, but actually is this going to cause um, almost a change in where, so to your point in the, the, the dentistry in terms of actually where they were, is there a responsibility in terms of the policies internally of conduct of employees that if they breach them, they're moving into spaces where they're actually liable for issues that they causing so i actually think there's a really interesting knock-on effect so you know post like to your point actually it becomes to that personal indemnity of, of where you're at you know does actually every employee need to get to the point where they're having professional indemnity insurance against breaching the policy and causing a breach for the company you know it's a we're and it feels very um you know total recall moment that far out but you know it, it, it could get to that stage uh, i think it? it's a, i think it's an interesting point i think that's probably an extrapolation a little bit too far but certainly that's what i do <laughs> yeah when you're talking to customers that culture piece do do, do you think that the customer the you know the employees of the customer you know have that culture feel like that sense of proprietorship that they think about clicking on a link before they click on it they don't just i'll randomly click on stuff and go well it's not my company i don't care and that company culture can really drive security behavior and that that's a really important factor i cannot tell you the number of reminders we get on a daily basis inside the firm to remind us about the threats that are out there on an ongoing basis so uh, it's important i know from sort of um colleagues who work at big banks there are uh you know people proactively run campaigns internally to catch people out not to be like you know witch hunts but just to be 
like tightening up everybody and where they're at i think you know holding employees to personally and financially responsible is probably quite a slippery slope and yeah the whole principle of a liability cover is that you cover not only uh, the organization but their employees there but there are other ways you can hold employees to account um yeah so through um you know their reviews uh, you know how, how you get you know, that talent management of these um and and really that's how you do it but yeah frankly they, they wouldn't have this exposure were not for the fact that they were an employee of this company. And therefore, I think there's any right that that company should buy a cover that, that it also covers them. Very, very true. And probably on that note, this wraps up the episode. Alec, absolutely fascinating topic, guys. I think it's going to really, really expand out and it's going to be one that everybody needs to be knowing about. So um, where can our listeners learn a bit more about you guys? You, you first. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. uh, just searching LinkedIn, Thomas Clayson from Zurich. Uh, same uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Gareth Wharton, or on Twitter, uh, the boy G. Fantastic. And I'm at David Breer or David at 11fs.com if you need me. And I'm uh, Nigel Walsh on Twitter. So, the most famous man in InsureTech. I don't think any introduction is needed, but by all means, Daniel Scheiber, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. So, for those that have not heard of Lemonade, which I can't believe can be a single insurance organization out there. Please give me uh, one minute on what Lemonade is and how you've come about. Sure. Lemonade is a young insurance company um, based out of New York, um, spreading throughout the United States. We just launched Washington DC today, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, A PNC licensed carrier. So we do everything. We're vertically integrated, do everything ourselves, but really built on two pillars, if you like. Behavioral economics, so a different twist on the traditional insurance model, trying to reduce some of the conflicts of interest and other and nasties that have uh, um, plagued the industry and very much built from the ground up on a digital substrate. So everything we do is data and digital, very quick to, to buy insurance, very quick to pay claims, um, delightful, a lot of words that one doesn't necessarily associate, but lowering costs, anxiety, and hopefully streamlining the process. I'm sure I'm not the only person to quote your homepage, but it's along the lines of forget everything you know about insurance, instant everything, killer prices, big heart. It's so unusual for an insurance carrier, right? Um, yeah, you know, th- this is part of what helps us actually, is that the anticipation or expectations from an insurance carrier is so low. The bar is unfortunately set very low. Uh, I think it's somewhat better in the, in the UK actually um, than in the US, but this is one of the industries that people love to hate, which is unfortunate because it's doing a social good and a critical economic function, but it's not perceived that way. And that's really what we're taking a run at. Why has that been the case? I mean, from your behavioral economics point of view, what, why has that been the the case that no one likes insurance? Is this just history or? Well, first of all, it is historic. It's been true. We've got records going back 700 years of people bemoaning the treatment by insurance companies. Uh, the, the Urban Dictionary uh, defines insurance as a promise to pay that is never fulfilled. So there is that perception. By the way, I think reality is a lot rosier than the perception, which yeah, yeah. just begs that question, why? And at least in our telling, it's because of the perception of a conflict of interest and an asymmetry of information. Dan Ariely, the behavioral economist and our chief behavioral officer, says that if you set out to create a system to bring out the worst in humanity, it would look a lot like an insurance company. So that idea that when you claim from me, if I don't pay you, I'm richer by that amount and you're poorer by that amount, creates the impression of an uneven playing field, which people then set out to rectify by embellishing claims, and then the tit-for-tat starts. It's a crazy situation. For someone in the industry, I get really upset by it, really physically moved by it, I truly believe it is a good industry. It's a yeah. great place to be, a great place to work. You've really changed that landscape, haven't you, in terms of Lemonade and the brand and what it's doing for insurance now? 
we're trying. It's still early days, but we are, we are, that's the run that we're taking is, you know, we're taking a run at exactly that. So we've changed some of the business models so that at least at first approximation, we're not in conflict with our customers. Right. Part of that is through the give back. So if there's money left over, we don't keep it. It goes to a charity of your choosing. And that changes behavior because now I have no incentive to deny or delay your claim because I'm not going to keep that money. When you make a claim, you might think twice if you know that you're screwing your kid's school rather than a big, nameless, faceless insurance company. Right. So we're trying to create a different dynamic. And that's working for all, for all ages, all, all groups? Or is it certainly for millennials? Or is it just, does it differ at all? Time will tell. We've been in market 18 months, but early indications are very encouraging. So definitely we skew towards millennials. 95% of our customers are first-time insurance buyers, so that will give you an age bias right there. But I think that all consumers like a company that the trust is endemic, where there's some social impact that's built into the business model. We all care about that stuff. But purpose and value is something close to your hearts as well. I mean, you, had a, you were probably the first to come out with, we're changing our rules on gun insurance. That was really interesting, right? Yeah, it's become a little bit more, following the, the horrible Florida shooting, it's become a little more uh, commonplace. But when we did it, it was a bit of a gamble uh, from a business point of view. But you know, I don't think insurance companies have the luxury of being indifferent on these things. As a homeowner's policy writer, we are insuring people from damage to their guns and by their guns. So we're in there. Now the question is, are you going to try to be neutral and just maximize profit? Or do you feel a certain burden, a certain sense of responsibility? I think the sharing values there is very important. Even as a consumer, sharing values with the company that you acquire those services from is really important these days. And you wouldn't naturally go to a company that is against the values that you hold as an individual. So that's really important for you to come out with. I think that's right. Um, all the more so in insurance where trust is the bedrock, isn't it? If I'm selling you an apple, you got the apple, you're on your way. Insurance is an exchange of promises. Um, a lot of them in the future, I'm going to pay you now for many years, and when I make a claim, you better be there for me. And when I make that claim, you want to trust me that I'm telling you the truth. So values as a bedrock for trust is so much more important in, in insurance than almost in any other sector. And it's funny, you and I are here talking about trust and things like this, not products or anything else that typically insurers, specifically here in the UK, do. Uh, different in other countries, of course, but we talk about products in silos. I think we're moving more and more to this customer, how we work with you and for you, as opposed to here's a cheap car policy or a cheap home or renter's policy to support you. So I think things are changing. I hope so. 18 months in. Yes. Journey, good, bad, highlights, lowlights, how would you describe it? Well ahead of our expectations. So we feel very uh, gratified by the reception that we've received. Uh, really across the board, regulators, um, it's no mean feat to be regulated by the great state of New York. Um, they are, I think, rightly regarded as one of the toughest regulators in the world. And we started there intentionally. So having passed muster with them, that's a great, uh, a, a great landmark for us. Reinsurers, we've got a fabulous panel of reinsurers without whom our business model wouldn't be enabled. Uh, VCs, the likes of Sequoia and Google and SoftBank backing us, of course. But more than any of those, I'd say consumers. So in our first year, we sold about 100,000 policies. That just blew, it, blew us away. The idea that people would put their trust in a brand with a juvenile name like Lemonade on its first day is just fabulous. I saw the stats as everyone else did. You are, as I said at the outset, you're the most analyzed insure tech out there right now. And the fact that you're sharing these opening day statistics and your, um, your quarterly reports as to here's what's going on, I think is really eye-opening to most of the community. People aren't used to this at all. No. <laughs> Not in insurance, and by the way, not in technology either. It's a bit unusual. So we're next after New York. So you said Washington, D.C. today. Well, we're actually already represent or covered in, in, about, in states that represent about 50% of the U.S. population. So 18 months in, we're in California and Texas and New Jersey and you know, a bunch of states in D.C. today. 
Um, but we did intimate that we are looking at a global expansion, which is unusual in insurance. PNC carries in the US stop at the water's edge, in Europe likewise, and we're not sure why that is. Um, we feel that two things about Lemonade allow us to at least experiment with a global expansion. One is that millennials in Berlin, Tokyo, or New York have a lot more in common with each other than with their surrounding environments. They're all using Spotify and Uber and Airbnb. Why not Lemonade? So we do think that technology is an equalizer. And the other thing is building a company in a digital way that we have, we don't need much of a physical presence. So yes, we have an office in Manhattan. Our largest market is five hours flight away in California, where we have exactly zero employees. Wow. So being digital allows you to expand globally without coming into town, building a skyscraper, populating it with hundreds of thousands of people. So big question for you, of course, is Europe. So when London, when Europe, is it imminent? Do we see it direct? Do we see it through uh, a third party or with a third party? Will Lemonade be on a, a price comparison website sometime soon? Um, wow, a lot of questions. Um, and the short answer is that we have very expansive ambitions both in terms of geography and in terms of product lines, by the way. Right. So yes, you will see us in new geographies. Yes, you will see us writing other product lines, but I'm not ready to announce the specifics today. Bang, bang goes my scoop. Yeah. It's quite exciting. The other thing that you did actually, which is really interesting to me, is APIs yes. and opening up the platform. It seems to be a, a current trend, whether it's uh, the guys here in the UK, whether it's Slice or other people, everyone's enabling their platform to mitigate against the legacy that we have in insurance organizations. How important is that for you as an organization going forward? I think it's hugely important and um, easy. So when you're a legacy-based institution, you've got so much spaghetti code to deal with, it's very difficult to open that up. Um, we have the luxury of being built from scratch and writing every line of code in-house. So for us, we're already using APIs internally. Our app speaks to our backend using APIs. So externalizing those is relatively straightforward when you're built the way we built or built in the, in the area in which we were built. Um, and as fast as Maya the bot can talk to you, she can sell you insurance in 90 seconds. English isn't her native tongue, right? She likes talking machine. Let her talk to another machine, she can sell insurance in microseconds. So I, I think this is something that really enables a whole new wave of distribution. So you use, a, you use a word there, which I'm intrigued by, enables. And I have often talked about insurance being invisible and transparent to an end consumer, i.e. bought by Amazon or a third party, whatever else. Do you ever see insurance being acquired by a different acquisition mechanism, but underpinned or powered by yourselves? Yeah, so APIs do enable that kind of thing. So you could be getting your mortgage and you can get the insurance as part of that mortgage buying process without, as it is today, being sent off to the broker, come back to me once you're done. So absolutely, you can become a, a you know, slipstreamed into somebody else's flow. Is that a worry then for you as an insurtech or a benefit for you as an insurtech or a benefit for the incumbent who's got you know, 30 plus million customers already or whatever else that's out there and can move, I guess, scale, but hasn't got your level of agility through the APIs, for example. We see it as an advantage. I can't speak about incumbents and they're not, um, they're not all the same, are they? I mean, some of them are much more technologically enabled than others. Um, but we do see it as an enabler. So once you can algorithmically write policies and instantly bind policies, which in the US is quite rare for homeowners policies, yeah. Um, that then enables you to become a seamless part of other people's process. If you need to rely on underwriters and brokers, then you're hamstrung and you've got to go through that distribution model. So we see it as a powerful You'll enabler. always be direct in that case. You'll always go direct to the end consumer for them to acquire digitally or elsewhere. Yes, I mean, I say direct. An API might be on somebody else's website, but yes, you'll know that you're dealing with Lemonade. Fantastic. So above and beyond new products, new geographies, what else are you most looking forward to over the next 12 months? Well. Um, we're a small team, 
Um, we've got about 75 uh, people and about uh, 150,000 policies that we've written. So we monitor a bunch of things. One of them is the ratio of people, humans on staff, to policies that we've sold. We've got about 1,500 today, which is a very healthy ratio. We want to drive that up to 10,000. Wow, okay. Um, just to calibrate you, most incumbents are somewhere between 500 and 1,000. So we've already reached uh, um, what is, I think, probably best in class in terms of a ratio of humans, and that requires a job lot of technology. In fact, we don't have an IT budget. We don't think in those terms. I, technology is the core of the business. And then the question is, with every function, somebody comes to me from support and they say, hey, we need more people. I said, well, are you sure perhaps we need another engineer? And say, you know, you're right. We need another engineer because we can automate this flow. And somebody from finance will say, hey, we've got so many filings, so many regulatory approvals we need. I need another person. I say, are you sure maybe another engineer could help? And indeed, we've managed to automate a lot of our regulatory filings. So it's about every function, from underwriting to finance to support. It's about building out the technology rather than the people. It's such a different mindset. Yeah. I wish you every success with this. I am truly a fan of what you guys are up to. Thanks so much, Nigel. I look forward to seeing you in the UK soon. Wonderful. Thank Thanks you so very much. much. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Uh, thank you to all our guests, Gareth Wharton and Thomas Clayton. Uh, Sarah, hopefully see you next time. And David, definitely see you next time. Uh, as always, you can find out find the show on Twitter, Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or otherwise or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>